pray that you'd be with us today uh, uh, during this time of preaching of the Word. I, I pray that you would help me to be faithful, help me to talk about Christ, to, to point to grace and, and to your gospel just over and over again. Um, I pray that you would um, just uh, help me to, to speak according to your will and according to your spirit. Help me to not uh, get in the way or put my agenda in or anything like that, but let me be, uh, be your voice today. And I pray that folks would hear you and, and um, come to know you better, come to know Christ and, and conform their lives to reflect you uh, through hearing your word preached. In Christ's name, amen. When, uh, when my wife and I were in Costa Rica a few years ago, um, it was more than a few years ago, I guess 10, 12 years ago, something like that, um, we, we did this thing where they, uh, they had uh, zip lines. Um, you know, and, and y'all are familiar with the idea of zip line, like James Bond did it and stuff like that. I, it was a lot less James Bondy when I did it. There was a lot more, like, girlish screaming and... Um, but, um, this, this thing we did was, uh, there was a volcano and a mountain and a rainforest down in between, and they had zip lines set up between the mountain and the volcano. And so you, you were way, I mean, way, way, way up, uh, and zipping back and forth. And it was such a long way that you would, you could almost stop and like, man, this is taking forever. Why, you know, why aren't I on the other side? <laughs> um, and, and so we, we did this, and it was a big step for my wife because she's kind of afraid of heights, and, and uh, it, was, it was very exciting. I had done zip lines at work before and, and been trained to, to maintain them and all that, and, and so I was familiar. They gave us, like, safety harnesses so that you don't fall, and they hook you in with these, you know, 10,000-pound rated, you know, um, rapid links, and, and, you know, they put a helmet on you as though falling from, you know... <laughs> the top of a volcano to the, to the valley, like, well, lucky he had his helmet on. Um, <laughs> um, the thing that blew me away, because we did this back and forth several times, and the last one actually, you zipped through the rainforest. They had, like, the trees cut away, and you went right down the middle of this, and it was a long way through the trees, and it was, it was incredible. Um, but the thing that blew me away, and the thing I want to touch on is um, there were these guys uh, that worked there, right? Like the the um, Costa Ricans, I guess the name that they call it, they call themselves Ticos. So I'm going to call them Ticos from here on out. So, you know, it's not a slur. They call themselves that. I, um, the Ticos, they would, they would do this all day and do these zip line tours like all day, every day. And there's this thing that happens when you're around something dangerous all day, every day. You all know what it is? You become careless. And these guys, I watched the one guy, you got a call on the radio, hey, we need you on the other side. He runs, jumps, no harness, no helmet. I can't believe he didn't wear a helmet. Um, but he wasn't, like, hooked in. He just ran and grabbed a hold of this thing and held onto the rope and zipped, like, a mile. And I'm thinking, man, he's going to be hanging on to that. Like, all he has to do is have a cramp, Right? All he has to do is sneeze wrong. Like, all he has to do, I mean, the guy literally, but he kind of, you know, just did it. And I watched every employee do that the whole time, back and forth, just grab a hold and hold on and zip across. And I'm thinking, 
there's a there's a phrase that I want to use more often, and I'm looking for opportunities to use it. And so, um, gravity is a harsh mistress. <laughs> the, the idea is, like, it doesn't give, right? You let go, gravity, you know, you trip and fall. Like, gravity, gravity does not play nice with you. And these folks, every time they did that, they were taking their lives in their own hands. Every time they did it, like, they were risking... The, the potential that they could fall to their deaths. And I was talking to the one guy. I said, well, how often do you guys do, you know, training? And how often do you, like, inspect all your, your lines? Oh, yeah, like, like every other week we, we shut the place down and we inspect the lines and we inspect all the equipment and everybody gets a safety course. And he turns around, jumps up, grabs the rope and zips across. I'm thinking, so you don't pay attention or you just don't care? Or um, the psalm we're in today is Psalm 14, we're working our way through psalms. Um, it's my goal to preach all 150-some-odd psalms before I die, uh, or before I retire. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I have a lot of time. Ministers work forever, uh, and we talk forever. Um, but, but this week, Psalm 14 is one that most folks know. This is the one that starts, A fool says in his heart there is no God, right? And it's, everybody's seen that on a Facebook post at some point. Right? Because it's that obnoxious thing you post out when somebody says, oh, well, there is no God. Well, you're a fool. Yeah, and that'll probably convince him. Great arguing. Um, we're we're going to be digging into this one. And there's a lot more to it. And actually, um, it's not a bat. It's a mirror. And it's a scary mirror. And it's one worth talking about. Um, as we go into the Psalms, understand these, are, um, these were originally designed to be a part of a worship service. This is, um, this is not just like a set of instructional text. Um, some of them have an instructional element. This is like outward emotional expression of, of men who were talking to God directly. And so there's a funny balance here. We can learn a lot from the Psalms. And we can relate to them because they're not straight theology. They're not history. These are like, like crying out to God from the core of who you are. And so like reading them is a little different than reading any other part of scripture and and like as we do this understands there's hyperbole there's symbolism you know it talks about god putting us under his wings you know i'm like a like a hen gathering her chicks you know that's god's probably not a chicken okay like that's that's uh figurative language there's a lot of that in here and we'll get to that um <clears throat> proverbs is the book that follows psalms and proverbs is this huge thing in ancient world like wisdom literature it would be what today is self-help books right y'all know that section lose weight on milkshakes every day um how to you know how to not be nervous how to you know whatever like the this whole section this would be the rough equivalent of that except that in the ancient world proverbs and wisdom literature was knowledge of God applied in everyday life. And so as you read this, like this psalm is what's called a, like, a, like a wisdom psalm or a proverb psalm. And there's a theory that in its like original form, um, it was probably a little more focused on that, right? Like if you read Psalm 1 as a good example of a wisdom psalm, this is a psalm that has been changed a little bit. And we know it's been changed, and we know that it was changed again, because if you read Psalm 53, it is the same psalm with a bunch of variations to it. And that's not that weird. You hear that, and it's like, wait a minute. So people would, what that is, is um, like Nathan sings Amazing Grace sometimes, and he sings a different version of it, right, with different lyrics. You all know what I'm talking about? It's that. It is, um, there's a song, uh, Glory Hallelujah. There's about 100 versions of it. 
um, with different lyrics and different you know variations. That would be adapted to the original setting. And actually, verse 7 was probably added during the exile. And they would sing this song as a part of worship, and they said, you know what, we should add something about this. And so, and we'll get to that again. Like, um, one last thing. The word fool in the ancient world, it is a weird word now. It doesn't have quite the weight. It was probably the, like considered to be the nastiest insult you could dump on someone. Like it was one of the meanest, cruelest, sharpest, most degrading things you could call someone um, in the ancient world. And what it basically meant, and it, like what it was a reference to, it wasn't just that you're loud or boorish. Otherwise, you know, like I would, there'd be no escaping for me. Um, it was you have no understanding of God or any understanding you have has no translation into how you live your life. Right? Like, this is the basic definition. And Psalm 14, like, nails that down. So we're going to get into the psalm. A lot of talking. Um, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, this is not necessarily um, the case that the person says with their mouth, there is no God. Right? It's that they say in their heart. Like, at the core of who they are, They believe either that there is no God or that he is powerless to do anything about it. Now, I I consider God to be very powerful. Like, I I don't even, whether I consider it or not doesn't change the fact, like, that God is powerful. And God is awesome. And he is, like, serious. We have to take him seriously. The fool is the guy who looks at God and says, yeah, he could probably crush me, but he grabs a hold of the zip line and does it his way instead of the safe way. You all with me? It's foolish. It is, I know that gravity is a harsh mistress, but I'm going to flirt with disaster because I believe gravity has no power over me. You know, and they know that gravity has power over them. They know that God has power over them. But in the core of who they are, they say, is it really ever going to come due? Um, I had a a doctor I saw for a long time who, um, he was a good doctor, um, but he was really overweight and he smoked. Right? Like, he's a doctor. <laughs> he should know better. Right? But, but he continued to operate on two sides of this because deep down we all believe we're kind of immortal. You know, nothing is ever going to catch up with me. Um, and so when the fool says in his heart there is no God, this is not necessarily what he's saying. This is how he lives. This is how he acts. This is the assumption that God cannot and will not intervene. Um, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Um, they are corrupt and they do abominable deeds is obviously a reference to... Did you need something, Mark? Oh. <laughs> it's about time somebody kicked me off the stage in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the idea that they're corrupt or that they're evil means, like, if you look at who they are, these are not people who say simply there is no God and then act like there is, Right? Um, These are people who um, might give lip service to the idea that God exists, but their actions speak so loudly that you cannot hear, like, anything else coming out of them. Um, There was a guy in the 80s, uh, I'm way too young to remember this, but I've read about it in history books, uh, a guy named Jim Baker. Those of you all who are a little older know who I'm talking about. Um, Jim Baker was a televangelist. He was uh, one of the first big televangelists, and... um, 
like he got up and he, he preached a version of the gospel, which wasn't the gospel. Uh, but he talked about Jesus and he talked about God all the time. And at the same time, he amassed an enormous fortune. And I, I heard that when he was in prison, they took his home and they put, like cut it up into subdivisions. Because the man who said, you know, like, like, you know, preached about Christ who was homeless. Like the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That, that kind of thing. And like, like at the same time, you know, had a fleet of Rolls Royces, right? And embezzled money and um, cheated a number of his folks by selling condos on a pyramid scheme, right? I think that's the right, anyway. Um, and had a bunch of affairs and used drugs and like, like just was corrupt. And actually I read a book that his son wrote, um, like his first book, and he talks about all of the weird infighting and power struggles that happened within his organization. And these are folks who, like, made a living saying God is there. But they acted as though he wasn't. Their lives reflected this truth that their hearts were saying something completely different than their mouths were. Right? And their deeds were abominable. Right? They were corrupt. Um, And there is no shortage of this in our world. Right? None at all. Um... This is, uh, well, we'll get into that here in a minute. Um, there is no one who does good. This is actually a line from the book of Genesis. There are several Genesis references in this text. Um, because this psalm um, like pulls lines out of other popular stories as a way of drawing like ideas or creating inflection or giving us this feeling of something else. And this is... Um, Actually, word for word, out of the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Like, like, and the, he uses it again in a little while. And the idea is like, there's no one who does good, no, not one. And he's drawing this this conclusion, like, hey, there are folks who say God is there. There are folks who swear up and down that God is real. There are people who maybe show up to Sunday morning every Sunday, but when you look at how they live their lives, their hearts tell a very different story. Um. The language that they're using and how this is presented is heavy, and it's something that should be taken seriously. It's something that should be taken seriously because um, because I don't want to find myself in this spot, right? And it's easy to do. It's easy to say, God wants me to treat people one way and then act another. It's easy to say... Um, you know, I should not allow, like, wicked things to come out of my mouth as well as holy things because, like, you can't draw poison water or clean water from a poison well, right? But then, like, 15 minutes later, I'm driving home and I get angry and I start swearing at the guy in front of me. Not that I ever do that. Um, or I get into an argument with my wife and the nastiest, coldest, meanest things come out of my mouth. Like, it is so easy to fall into that and it is something we have to guard against. We have to guard our hearts because in, in all of us there's this sin thing, right? And once we start following Christ, sin doesn't go away. It struggles. And there's like this tug of war that takes place inside of us where like this desire to follow Christ fights with our flesh. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and there are days where like this will take over. There is no God. Like, and there are folks who live this way. They, they live as though God is not there, um, though they give credit to him with their mouths. Uh, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Um, that phrase, the Lord looks down from heaven, is probably, well, it's definitely word for word from 
the account of Noah, where the people became so corrupt that God destroyed everyone. And, like, the hint here is, hey, God isn't going to, like, lay down and let this happen forever. God isn't going to ignore it forever. God isn't going to stand back and allow wickedness to play out forever. Um, he watches us, and he sees, like, who's seeking after God. Um, for us, this is about commitment to Christ. When I uh, had this big turnaround in my life years and years ago, this is like the fifth time I've talked about this this week, so that's why it's coming out now. Um, I had this point in time where, um, like, I, I was not following Christ in my actions, but I was a minister. <laughs> I'm like a youth minister, admittedly, not a real one. Um, but... <laughs> But um, I got a promotion to be the chaplain at the children's home. And the night before I started, I woke up at like 2 in the morning. I was really hungover. And I was like everything. I had this realization. Everything in my life is screwed up. I am so lost right now and so not following Jesus. And I had this weight of shame and guilt on me. And I laid in bed and I prayed for hours. And just over and over again begged for God to fix it. Like Fix me, fix this, help me to fix this, help me to fix this. And in the space of like three months, my entire life had changed um, because Christ fixed me. We can only seek after Christ. We can only chase after him if Christ is number one. And it's not number one in lip service. It is number one in reality, right? Um, to draw an analogy to this, my wife and I, I love my wife very much. There are months and weeks and days where I act like work is what I love, right? There are times where money is what I love. There are a lot of times where me is what I love. And my wife can tell, right? She can't. And I would wager that most of y'all have had times like this, right? Like where you say, I love this person, or I love this, or I love that, or I love this more than anything else, and like our heart and our actions betray that. Um, seeking after Christ is God's fix for us. Christ died and took punishment for our sins, and when we follow him, we are a new creation. We're given a new life. And so as we seek after Christ, like that night, what I prayed for was, God, just let me chase after you and nothing else. Let you be the most important thing in my life. And that is what God calls us toward, right? That is what God pulls us toward, make me number one. When my wife, every once in a while, when I'm being stupid, she'll pull me aside and say, you know what, Eric, you really need to refocus here because you're, you're getting distracted from the things that are important. And I know at that point what she's saying is, hey, Eric, love me, right? Like, be who you're supposed to be. Following Christ is 110%, and everything follows under that umbrella. I love my family better because I follow Christ. I love... Y'all better because I follow Christ. I study the word better because I follow Christ. And this is what God is calling us toward. He is calling us to seek after God, not say it and live different in our hearts. Uh, we'll continue here. They have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Um, that none who does good, remember that from a, like two verses ago? Um, this is the other end of this. And he's saying, listen, these are folks who have turned in different directions. They do the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. They are corrupt through and through, and their corruption spreads. And we'll get into the next little bit here, and it's going to talk about how that corruption is spread. But, like, the reality is you cannot be corrupt. You cannot be sinful inside without it infecting the people around you, right? 
Um, this is a little like when you find an apple that started to rot in a bag. Right? That, that rot doesn't stay. If you leave that in there long enough, the apple next to it is going to start to rot. And if you want to see examples of this right now, you can see it all over the place. There are folks who are rotten inside and they get rich and they get fat on the backs of people who can't protect themselves. Um, there's a great example of this like three or four years ago where this guy came out and he bought the patent for EpiPens. Was it EpiPens? And then he multiplied the cost of EpiPens by like 20 and just gouged the heck out of everyone because he controlled the market. He is in prison now. <laughs> but that is getting fat off of folks who cannot protect themselves. That is a man who says, I am not obliged to anyone. Um, the best example of this I can think of actually was, uh, you all know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? Uh, those of you guys who are young, Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer who was arrested uh, probably in the early 90s, I think. Um, but he was murdering and, and eating people. Um, and, and he was a bad dude, right? He went to prison, and he, he had this huge change of heart, and he found God. And he, I read this quote from him where he said, Back then I could do whatever I want because I believed I was God. And so it didn't matter if I hurt other people. It didn't matter if I took advantage of other people. It didn't matter if I robbed. It didn't matter if I stole. It didn't matter if I killed. It didn't matter if I tortured. None of it mattered because I was God. And no one was going to hold me accountable. And the reality is the man who says in his heart there is no God, it doesn't matter if you take advantage of sick people. Because nobody's going to pay me back. Nobody's going to hold me accountable. Um, this is the opposite of what Christ calls us to be. We're called to be like him, to sacrifice ourselves and our time and our resources and our heart to loving folks and chasing after folks and serving folks and taking care of folks and protecting folks. This is who we are called to be. This is the anti-this, the anti-corrupt, um, the anti-turned aside. Like instead we focus and Christ becomes our whole life. Um, they have no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, or have they no knowledge? Um, some translations, the NIV in particular, renders this, will they never learn, right? And here's the trick. They can't. Like, there is this condition we can hit where we become so hard in heart that we no longer will listen and we no longer will learn. Um, I know certain things are bad for me, but I keep doing them. I've read probably 20 articles in the last few years, and John reminds me every other time he sees me, like that Diet Coke will, like, like is connected to higher rates of like uh, heart attacks and strokes. Like, like you know that there's this actual connection that's very well established. I read another one yesterday, and I am still going to drink Diet Coke. You know why? Because I like it. Um, <laughs> But the reality is that this is like my heart is hardened to this reality. Like, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. Um, a man who's become hardened to the knowledge of God will see God act and say, I don't care because I want to do what I want to do. Um, a pastor I worked for in Indiana had uh, a man show up at his church in, in the middle of a work day and say to him, God doesn't exist. I want you to prove to me that he does. And he argued with him for like two hours and finally, like after answering every question and bettering him in every argument, the guy finally stopped and said, you know what, you're right, 
Intellectually, I can see where this is, this is probably true, but I'm cheating on my wife, and if God exists, I can't do that. I was really hoping you would help strengthen my position in cheating on my wife. <laughs> that is a hard heart, right? That is, I know what's true, but I want to do what I want to do, so I'm going to ignore the truth and do what I feel like, right? But the foolishness of this is that it's grabbing a hold of the line and assuming nothing will ever go wrong. Gravity will never come and collect its due. And in reality, like gravity, gravity's pretty hard to fight. You know, like it usually wins in the end. Um, God is powerful. God is huge. And those who eat up his people as bread, who treat like God's people, as though they're a commodity to be consumed, as though they're um, someone to take advantage of. Right now, honestly, I, I watch, and there are a lot of church leaders who treat believers as though they're votes to be manipulated. Isn't it true? Who look at believers and they say, this is somebody who could buy my next book, and I need to hook him in just long enough to get the $25 out of him for the next hardback. Um, who look at believers and all they see is influence and power that they can have. That is eating people like bread. It is treating people as though there's something they can have or own or manipulate. Um, it's wicked. Um, and they don't call upon the Lord. They may do it with their lips, but in their hearts they, they don't. Um, there's a great line in the, in the prophets, and it just popped in my head, so I'm sorry I, I don't have the reference where it talks about, like, um, I think it's in Isaiah, actually, where it talks about um, God's people calling out to him, but he doesn't even listen because there's blood on their hands, right? Like, you you know, and they sacrifice, but I don't want their sacrifices because their hearts are garbage. Um, Psalmist goes on. Oh, did I? Oh, how are they? Yeah, all right, sorry. Um, There they will be in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And so the psalmist goes on and he says, listen. Evildoers, like people who are wicked, people who are rebelling, people who are stealing from the flock, people who are manipulating and oppressing God's people, people who take advantage of the poor, people who take advantage of the helpless, people who take advantage of the old and the infirm, like these people will stand in terror before God because there will be a time that God responds and there will be a time when God acts. And in that moment, there will be terror. Um, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, the angry, of an angry God, right? Like God is there and he is big and he is scary. And those people who do this, when we live this way, um, there will be a day when the folks who are oppressing and taking advantage of and wickedly treating and seeing the plans of the poor and saying, how can I benefit from this? Um, They will be in trouble. And ultimately, there's a cool little thing here. You would shame the poor, the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Meaning that, like, sometimes people who are helpless or unable or poor, like, they experience difficulty. And what they find in it is the reality that God is their salvation and God is their refuge. I talked last week at length about uh, Cory Ten Boom, who was a Dutch girl who ended up in a concentration camp because her family was hiding Jews in their, in their watch shop. And 
through her time, you know, being in the crushing wickedness of a concentration camp, she found, she found the Lord like in a huge way. She, she found the ability to thank God for the worst thing. She thanked God that, that there were fleas all over them because he kept the guards away from them. Like her refuge was in Christ over and over and over again. And oftentimes that is one of the reasons that God allows wickedness to happen. Because in wickedness, like when we experience oppression or difficulty, and we don't really experience a lot of that. I mean, our world is pretty easy, right? It's pretty safe. We live in a pretty, you know, in a pretty protected environment. But like when believers are oppressed, when they are mistreated, when they are pushed, um, they realize like God is it. There is no safety in this world. God is my safety. Like, God is where I run. He is my refuge. He is my shelter. He is the fort I'm going to hide in. Um, It's a huge thing. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, for the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Um, This is a reference. Zion is a hill. How exciting. They're not sure which hill it is. Um, is another thing that's kind of funny. It's probably the hill that the temple is built on, right? And this is a reference. Like, out of God's, like, place in this world, salvation is going to come to his people. He will come and he will save them. Um, A lot of us understand this to mean, like, in eternity, God will make it right, right? Like, there are those who've been um, martyred, and there's those who've been tortured for Christ, and there are those who have been deprived of everything in the name of, like, following Jesus. Um, And... Um, God will restore it all. Um, it may be an eternity, but God will, will set right the things that have been made wrong. And actually, this is a, uh, uh, Peter kind of talks about this, and we talked a little bit where, like, God will um, vindicate, right? You will be vindicated. We'll stand before God, and he will vindicate his people. Um, last line, and this is probably an addition. So, um, did I? Oh, I was reading that, and I thought, man, that. Verse 6, that doesn't sound right. Uh, This is probably, this last line is probably an addition. It was probably written while God's people were in exile, right? And they read this psalm, and they read about wickedness, and they read about people who said they're no God, and they're like, hey, this sounds like the Babylonians, right? And God will vindicate us, and God will protect us. And actually, in the long run, um, Isaiah gave the name Cyrus. Cyrus will come and deliver his people from exile. And the general who led the Persian army that came and beat the tar out of the Babylonians and dragged them out of exile was Cyrus. It's kind of cool. He wrote it 70 years before Cyrus was like general. It's kind of a neat little thing. Um, but this addition was made, and this is kind of cool, because like as we look at the Psalms, God's people adapted them. And they read them, and they said, this sounds like my situation. And they applied this. And that's the cool thing about the word, like we can find things in it. We can find things that speak to us where God like speaks in a huge way. If we jump to Psalm 53, which we're not going to do today, um, we'd find a complete like variation of this same song that speaks to a different set of circumstances. Um, But we probably won't get to that for like three years. So, sorry, not today. Um, But the final line here is important because it says... Basically, God will take care of us. It says, he is our refuge, and he's going to save us. And as we experience difficulty in life, we can always back up and find that. Like, God, you are taking care of me. Um, I, there are days I watch the news or I read the news, and I can't help but think everyone is wicked. 
and I think, what is going to happen to us? Right? Like, like I, I don't trust anybody. You know, like, it's, everyone's bad. Like, what is going to happen? But at the end of the day, like, God is going to set it right. Folks who take advantage and oppress and steal from God's sheep and manipulate and preach false gospels and preach political gospels like, oh, worldly power is what will save you and all that other nonsense, they will answer. Um, our job is to be Christ here and now. Our job is to be the opposite of this. It's to put bread in the mouths of folks who are hungry, right? Not just bread, but the gospel, right? The bread of life. Um, our job is to take, it, take our, our, our resources and protect people who are helpless. There are folks, um, I actually read an article this morning as I was getting up and drinking my coffee that talked about statistics for human trafficking. And in the United States, human trafficking is one of the, like, is, like for globally, we're, we're way up at the top end of it. Like, there's quite a bit of human trafficking that takes place in and through and out of the United States, right? We don't have open slave markets, but, like, it happens. Um, our job as a church is to preach the gospel and to help people, right? And it's our job to help. It's not our job to ignore. It's not our job to walk away. It is our job to help. Um, so our grow for this, we're, this is kind of a newer thing. Um, I've been doing it for a month or so, but we're going to keep it up because I like it. And uh, this is my acronym for uh, spiritual growth, grow. The first is give it to God. Like, and this is, it begins at home. Like looking at your heart, looking at your life, looking at where you make your decisions, looking at where your moral center is, um, all of this stuff, like where's it coming from? Like, are you the man or the woman who stands there and says, with your mouth, there is a God, but in the core of who you are, like, you're heading in a different direction. Like, money is God. Sex is God. Um, food is God. Um, political power is God. Whatever. Like, my bitterness and anger is God. Like, who are you? What is in the core of who you are? And if at the core of who you are, like, like Christ isn't it, that is the beginning. You can never live right in a way that pleases God apart from Christ. Like, it cannot happen. If Christ is not at the core, if Christ is not at the center, um, it will always turn into dust. Um, I, I firmly believe that guys like Jim Baker um, began trying to glorify God when they were 15. And over time, they stood at the center and became wicked progressively. Um, I... I I believe it. I didn't start out, you know, being lost and broken where I had to beg God to fix me. Um, well, I did. But I had been a believer for a number of years when that happened. Um, so give it to God would be the first, right? R for grow is repent and renew. Um, this begins with, like, repentance means confessing. It means acknowledging where you live your life focused on you instead of Christ. And... And this is actually, I don't know anybody who doesn't have to do this a little bit, right? I, I, when I feel like I have it nailed down, it seems like God is right there ready to show me, oh, but what about this? You know, what about like this? What about this? Isn't this yours? Um, at the end of the day, anywhere that we have not covered ourselves with Christ's like, like blood, anywhere where we have not given him control, everywhere where he is not the boss, um, we have to repent of that. We have to confess it. I'm a firm believer in confessing to other believers. Because it's harder than confessing to God because we don't take God seriously, right? 
But like if I stood before God and said, all right, God, here's a list of my sins, I would probably wet myself about a moment before I passed out. Because right? God is big, holy, and scary. And he is. But he's good. Um, and so confess. We say it out loud. We talk about areas where we've struggled. We talk about areas where we've made ourselves into idols or where we worship things that aren't him. Um, we look at... Uh, how our attitude and behavior are an example of Christ and his teachings. Like, do we follow him? Um, that means if the people who work with you are always ready for you to yell at them, you might ask if that matches Jesus. Right? If the people who stand around you know that in your spare time, they're probably going to catch you looking at porn on your phone in the bathroom at work, like, that doesn't reflect Christ. Um, if you don't talk to your wife because, like, you're tired of her or because it's so hard to talk to her because she wants to talk about feelings, not farming. Um, I, my wife never wants to talk about farming. I mean, no. <laughs> That's a thing, though. Like, like, in Christ, we have to, like, approach people as though, um, as though we love them. Does your behavior, attitude, language, the way you talk, the way you treat folks, does it reflect Christ? Is it centered on Christ or is it something else? Um, And then ask yourself, like repenting, realizing that you're wrong, realizing that you're broken is one thing, but you have to change course. Figure out how you can head in a new direction. If you need help with that, come talk to me. Like, Like we'll set you up with somebody who will disciple you and do accountability with you and you can grow. And that is a part of how the church is designed to help people grow. Um... Oh, own it. I got a couple of books, a couple of things to read. If you want to learn about wisdom, read the book of Proverbs. There's 30 chapters in Proverbs. So you can read a chapter a day and nail it in about a month. And it's quite a bit to chew on. There's quite a bit of cool stuff in it. Um, Huge, huge thing. Uh, Read the Sermon on the Mount regularly. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you say, I've got all this nailed down, you need to talk to somebody who knows you really well so they can put you on, like, real life because <laughs> no one can do it. Like, it is such a perfect example, but it's who Christ is. Um, and reading it regularly, reading the teachings of Christ. Read the book of James, which is actually an extrapolation of the Sermon on the Mount. You want to read something that's hard. It is a hard book. Um, a couple of books I'd suggest uh, for you married people, You and Me Forever, is one of my favorite marriage books, but it talks about like marriage in light of Christ and in light of eternity. Uh, Crazy Love, written by the same guy, um, Francis Chan. It talks about loving Christ more than anything to the point where it's nuts. Um, And Radical Disciple was written by, I believe, John Stott. I've got a copy of it if you want to read it. But it talks about living your life to follow Christ, period. It is a discipleship, how do you be different book. It is not easy. Um, It's an easy read. It's not an easy life. Uh, and then pray about it. Like part of owning it is talking to God and saying, this is where I'm broken, fix it. This is where I'm out of harmony, fix it. Last one, work it in. All of this stuff doesn't work if you don't act it out, right? If you hate the guy in the pew next to you, if you hate your neighbor, if you hate your kids or your spouse, your parents or somebody you haven't talked to in 30 years and you actively keep that fire hot with hate, 
guess what? You're not working into your life. You can read about it all day long, but if you do not turn it into how you live, if your life is not marked by Christ-likeness because your heart is becoming like Christ, because you have been renewed and made new and heading in a different direction entirely, that's, that's broken. Um, this, in my world, began with going around and finding people I had gossiped about or stolen from or cheated or mistreated or whatever, and confessing to them and asking for forgiveness. But the reality is that's actually how Christ directed people to do it. Um, If you can't see it, ask the people around you. The amazing gift that comes with having a wife is she knows everything you're doing wrong. And husband. Um, Ask. Um, Look for ways to work it into who you are. Um, If you're looking for practical opportunities, talk to Terry. Because Terry always needs people to help with the food bank. Um, And I think with sandwiches for kids who don't have food at the library every week. And um, probably about a dozen other things, right? Like there are opportunities. There are ministries all around us that need help. There are people all around us that need folks to visit them. That need folks to love them. That need folks to to be Christ in their presence. Um, I, I talked with somebody who said to me that one of the best ways they met Christ in the in the last like 20 years was how Francis would call and check in with them regularly. I always knew that she'd call and ask. I always knew that if I missed church, Francis would touch base with me. She'd come by and say howdy, and she's not here, so I can talk about her all I want. Um, but that attitude of you are important, Christ died for you, I will live my life serving you, that is it. And you saw it in her. You see it in a lot of people around here. We're going to close in prayer. I'm going to remind you, family camp next week. There are maps in the lobby, the foyer, that table out there. And copies of the grow thing are out there, bookmarks and big sheets if your eyes are bad. Um, grab one up because otherwise I have to keep them all. Um, <laughs> Um, If there's something that spoke to you and you didn't write it down, grab it. Pray about it. Be different. Grow. There's no point in planning anything if it doesn't grow, right? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would help us to glorify you. Like over and over and over again, I pray that you would help us to be people who in in our hearts, as well as in our actions, as well as with our words, Um, in everything that we do. Help us to be people who say there is a God, that God is real, and I know him. Help us to be people who belong to you. Help us to be people who um, are wise by your standards and not wise in our own eyes. Um, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.